Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. Uh, what Happens Next is a podcast where experts are given just six minutes to present, and this is followed by a question and answer period for deeper engagement. This week's topics include stimulus inequities, working in government, and detecting bullshit. Our first speaker will be Robin Greenwood, who is the George Gunn Professor of Finance and Banking at Harvard Business School. I met Robin through my business partner, Mike Rosinski, who co-taught a course with Robin at HBS. Robin has been responsible for organizing and teaching the corporate finance department segment of Harvard Business School's curriculum. Robin spoke twice before on what happens next. His first presentation was on streamlining the bankruptcy process during COVID, and the second one was on predicting financial crises. Today, Robin will discuss his recent research and how the government stimulus programs for COVID have led to rising stock prices. I want to learn from Robin what he thinks the current $1 trillion infrastructure bill and the additional $3.5 trillion Biden spending proposal will do to stock prices in the future based on his recent research. Our second speaker is Bruce Tuckman, who is the former chief economist at the Commodities Futures Trading Commission and is currently the clinical professor of finance at NYU's Stern School of Business. Bruce and I were business partners back when we worked together at Stalin Brothers in the fixed income arbitrage department. My boss at the time, Rob Davis, interviewed Bruce to be a, a quantitative analyst in our U.S. Treasury and Derivatives Department to work with me. Rob asked me if I wanted to interview Bruce, but he said it wasn't necessary because he already knew my opinion on the matter. I was confused because at the time I had ne never met Bruce. I asked Rob what my opinion was going to be, and he told me I was going to love him, and as usual, Rob was right. Bruce joined the independent government agency, the CFTC, uh, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission in June 2017, where he worked as their chief economist for three years. This was Bruce's first position in government, and I've asked Bruce to tell us about what he learned working for an independent government agency and how to motivate a bureaucracy. I've entitled this session, Tuckman Goes to Washington. Our final speaker today is John Petro Petrocelli, who is a professor of psychology at Wake Forest University. He is the author of the book entitled Life-Changing Science of Detecting Bullshit. I am really excited to learn about how to find out how, bullshit is, how much bullshit is out there and how to navigate that fine line between truth, lies, and bullshit. Since the beginning of what happens next, I've commented on the Bureau of Labor Statistics monthly labor report. I do this because it is the most important economic statistic in the U.S., and it is the best indicator to evaluate the health of the economy and the job market. The employment report that was released this last Friday was a whopper. The establishment survey showed a gain of 943,000 jobs, which was significantly above the street economist's forecast. There was also revisions to the previous two months, which showed an additional 120,000 jobs. The unemployment rate fell month on month by a half of 1% to 5.4% with 8.7 million unemployed. And this compares to 16 million uh, unemployed people just a year ago. Pre-COVID, in February 2020, when we were at full employment, the unemployment rate was just 3.5% with 5.7 million unemployed. So a difference of 2 and 3 uh, million uh, people, uh, respectively. Here's what I thought was interesting in the detail of the report. College-educated workers is basically in full employment with just 3%, so uh, future workers are going to have to come from the pool of less educated workers. And this month, we saw a very dramatic uh, decline in unemployment among high school educated workers, 
African Americans and teenagers. The demand for labor remains on fire. The latest JOLTS data shows an all-time high 9.2 million job openings, which is double normal levels. The dynamism of the labor market is really surprising to me. Over the past 12 months, 73 million Americans have found new jobs, while 65 million jobs were terminated. This is because many people switch jobs and often multiple times a year. You should think of the 73 million new jobs in the context of 152 million total jobs uh, currently in people employed in the United States. The labor sector with the greatest improvement uh, this past month was leisure and hospitality. This sector was the hardest hit by COVID and is now rehiring like gangbusters. Leisure represented half of all private sector increases in employment this past month, uh, even despite the rapid rise in the Delta variant. This sector still has 1.7 million fewer workers than pre-COVID, so we should expect this sector to be where most employment growth comes from in the months ahead. There are still millions of Americans who are not working and not looking for work. Uh, as Casey Mulligan informed us on what happens next, uh, the cause is substantial government payments that encourage low-wage employees not to work. Uh, worker wages have risen 4% year-on-year, and the lowest-paid group has seen wage increases of 10%. September uh, will end the extra federal unemployment benefits, so we will likely see a surge in low-wage worker supply. I expect that these workers will get hired rapidly. It will be interesting to find out if the higher wages and starting bonuses last when the supply of workers increases dramatically. The number of people teleworking continues to decline. In May of 2020, 35% of all American workers teleworked. Today, it's down to 13% and is falling by about 1% per month. There's been a lot of discussion about what this new normal about working from home will be like, and the numbers suggest that most people are going back to the workplace. All right, that ends that discussion. Let's begin um, with our first speaker today, Robin Greenwood. Robin, go ahead. Larry, thanks for the opportunity. I'm going to be speaking about some work with Thomas Loritz and Jeff Wergler, who are both at NYU, and the work is called Stock Market Stimulus. What we're interested in is the dramatic rise of the stock market between March of last year and today, in particular, the role of government stimulus payments um, in, in generating that rise. Now, I'm not going to be focused on the macroeconomic effects of the stimulus payments, for example, through businesses. Uh, cash flow growth and so on, but rather the direct effects of the stimulus payments uh, insofar as they ended up as flows into the stock market. So um, just to give you a sense of, the, of what's going on here, uh, maybe the start, best starting point is to look at anecdotes from Reddit and places like Wall Street Bets. If you were to peruse these places and see what people are talking about when they're speaking about different stocks, back in April of last year, these are just some quotes. Um, Threw down my whole stimulus check on Roku and doubled it. God bless America. Then the next round of stimulus checks in January of this year. Yeah, pa, get your stimulus check and dump it into stocks. And then in March again of this year, can't wait for my stimulus check to drop tomorrow and grab some more AMC. So certainly uh, people who are uh, in the market for speculative stocks have been talking about um, the effect of the stimulus payments. So the way I'm going to talk about this is uh, first – talk to you about the overall structure and some of the timing of the stimulus payments, then talk about how we think about the investability of those checks, how much might have made its way into the stock market, and then give you some evidence on the link to overall stock market activity. And I should say one of the most challenging things here 
is that it's very difficult to draw a causal link between inflows and the overall market. And so our general approach in this work has been to try to focus on the most speculative stocks in the market, which we believe ended up getting the largest inflows uh, during this time. So type of data that we drew on U.S. Treasury and IRS news releases, discussions with Treasury officials, Reddit, Google, Google Trends, FOIA requests on things like lottery spending and all sorts of interesting uh, other, other data. Okay, let me first just take you through the overall structure and timing of the data just to give you a sense. So there were three sets of checks that were sent out on April 15th of last year, on January 4th of this year, and then on March 17th of this year. The first set of payments was approximately 300 billion, then 164 billion, and then 400 billion, 411 billion in the most recent round. Now, interestingly, you can really get in the weeds as to when the checks were sent out. And it turns out, especially in the first round, the government had some trouble actually getting the, as, as you probably know, getting the, the dollars in the hands, um, in the hands of, of people. That being said, these dates are roughly right in the sense that most of the money was dispersed uh, right around, uh, right around these, these dates. So first order of business was really established how people say they use the stimulus check and then how people talk about um, the spending. And then there's, we have some direct evidence on the spending uh, as well. So there's actually, turns out the census runs this thing called the Pulse Survey where they check in on U.S. households. And on weeks 12, 22, and 27, they asked households how they had spent or planned to spend uh, the payments they had received from the government. In the first round, about 14% of them reported uh, putting some of the money into savings and investment. In the second round, 15%, and then in the third round, 23% as the economy uh, was, was kicking up. Also consistent with this is that if you look at overall discussion of, for example, the word stimulus check in Wall Street bets and other places, you will find them really picking up um, around the time uh, of, of these checks. The most interesting piece of evidence that we looked at here was on data collected by Raj Chetty and his co-authors, and they tracked track daily spending of um, individuals uh, during this time. And low-income households, for the most part, uh, pour the money uh, directly into uh, retail and grocery spend, and you see very little uh, of that happening for the middle-income households, suggesting that it either ends up um, in savings of some sort or, or elsewhere that we can't track. So we looked at then two uh, measures of stock market activity. The first was order flow, so trying to figure out where do we find uh, patterns of retail demand, uh, for example, uh, particularly in the most uh, Robin Hood, let's call it the most Robin Hoody type stocks. And then the second was to look at the overall performance of these stocks um, during that time. And so one of the things that I'd never heard about, but actually it turns out that you can pinpoint retail order flow very precisely these days because of algorithms that allow you to figure out um, what the net price improvement is on a trade and only retail gets price improvement. And so uh, you can document that pretty clearly. Now it turns out, so if you look around these windows, these especially the first window around the stimulus check, the retail share of share volume really shoots up and um, you can also look at this retail volume in a bunch of bunch of different ways. 
So let me, I think I have one minute left. I'd like to just to share with you the numbers in terms of what happens to the overall returns during this period. Um, on the April period last year, the most speculative stocks outperformed the least speculative stocks. Keep in mind, this is a very short window, just a few days really when these we're, we're tracking this on the order of four percentage points. Then if you look in January of this year, it's on the order of three percentage points. And then in March of this year, on the order of one to two percentage points. So I think the bottom line here is, is that we can find some evidence of the stimulus checks affecting the most speculative stocks. Having said that, the effect, the direct effects on these days are fairly modest. And so our next order of business, and this is something that we've been investigating, is really trying to figure out whether there are any positive feedback effects that are really these, steps, these, these checks being the first step in a chain of uh, capital entering the stock market and juicing up valuations. And I think I'll stop there. Thanks, Robin. So, you know, the, the purpose of these checks was to help people um, get through a very challenging period. Um, as a public policy matter, how do you feel about it when they use this cash and, and use it for speculation, whether it be lottery tickets or AMC stock or whatnot? Sure. Or um, gun sales or fireworks or things like that, which we also have some evidence on. Um, I would say the good news is that there were a billion dollars of checks, roughly, and our best estimate is that somewhere between 60 billion and 100 billion ended up in the stock market. And that's that's also just an estimate. But if you think about that, that means that 90, more than 90% of those checks ended up back in the economy, which is what you wanted, because both, both it, it helped support the economy and small businesses, and also uh, presumably meant that it was helping those households. And of course, if you look at data from Chetty and his co-authors, you could see that in the lowest income zip codes, the spending, even on things like groceries, dramatically jumps when these checks are deposited. Um, so, just, so I, th I think as the glass is half full here, but with a billion, with a, with a uh, excuse me, with a trillion dollars uh, being spent, uh, you know there are going to be some pretty significant unintended consequences. And here we think that magnitude is about 100 billion. You know, it, it's funny when in introductory uh, macroeconomic classes we're taught about Keynesian multipliers and how giving money to the poor has its the biggest bang for the buck as it runs through the economy. Um, does this change your mind about that in any way, or um, it's just it just not immediate that sometimes that some households or families choose to put the stock market first and then spend the money later? How, how do you think about this whole context of spending versus savings and investment? It's a wonderful question, and actually one we haven't dug into uh, as much as I would like. Let me give you just a back-of-the-envelope way of thinking about it, I think it's one of, one of magnitude. So think if you look at the low-income households, it is true that, by and large, when they get the checks, they pump it back into the economy. If you look at the high-income households, they, by and large, save it, meaning it either shows up in, the, in a checking or savings account or ends up, ends up in the stock market. Now, $100 billion, the question is, you know, what's the multiplier on that on the overall market? And actually, it's not something that we could really answer directly using our evidence, but I can give you a sense. 
people talk about the overall elasticity of the stock market being five to 10. What does that mean? If you put up $100 billion into the market, it raises the overall value of the stock market by, say, $500 billion to a trillion. Now, you might say, geez, that's a lot. That's a much higher multiplier than I expected. On the other hand, in percentage terms of the value of the stock market, whether it's 30, at 30 trillion or at 40 trillion or 50 trillion, it's not particularly large. It's just a few percentage points. So I would say this doesn't change my mind dramatically about the overall multiplier, uh, but, but it's a provocative question that we should, we should surely investigate. And just as a follow-up hey, it seems like – go ahead, Bruce, you want a question? Go ahead. Yeah, just a quick question for Robin. So people have been investing in stocks with not stimulus checks, a lot of momentum in the market or whatever you call it over the last time. Do you, do you have an idea about whether the people who have gotten stimulus checks are putting more into the stock market than other people have in making that comparison? I would say that's the, the, the primary weakness of our study is that we don't have the direct – we can't measure directly who's putting the money in. So we can measure things like the retail order flow. We can use the zip code level data to get a sense of who's saving the money and who is spending it. But we don't have that, uh, that, that detailed household, household level uh, data. And, you know, maybe, maybe one day we will get it and that will help us answer this uh, answer answer your question uh, properly. So I think that part of our uh, our study is indirect. How, having said that, triangulating between a whole bunch of different sources, we do have the sense that you know roughly about a hundred billion of the trillion is ending up into the stock market. Thank you. A, a different angle. Um, you know, one of the great things about the stock market is it lets. Um, the business and investment community know where to invest money. Um, you know, if if crypto is going crazy, that means we should mine more crypto. Uh, if IT is going crazy, we probably should start new venture capital in that area. Even normal firms should do that. What's weird about these, as you called it, Robin Hoodie names, is there's a sort of um, confusion. Uh, there's a sense that although the stock market is surging in, let's say, AMC theaters, um, most businessmen would not go out and build a new movie theater in COVID times um, or even if COVID ends. Uh, how should we think about speculative excess caused by stimulus as a motivation for new investment? Uh let me say two things on that. First, there's some amazing work by Tomas Philippon at NYU with some co-authors trying to really dig in over time on the information value of the stock market and trying to do at a, on a historical basis answer your answer your question. Now they will they did that work prior to this most recent crazy period of excess, uh, but I think it would be worth uh, revisiting those findings. Second point is there are two types of investment. One is real capital investment, you know, building new, uh, building movie theaters, as you say. The other is kind of more of a form of arbitrage, which is AMC issuing more stock and essentially doing an arbitrage on its own securities. And we see historically when valuations go crazy, we see a lot of arbitrage and we see a little bit of investment, which says that it's probably more benign than we might think because it just means it's a transfer from essentially the smart corporations and ETF providers and money managers 
who are figuring a way to uh, profit off of the overpriced asset uh, than it is sort of misplaced dollars, for example, you know, building building new movie theaters in, in New York City. That, As I mentioned, in, yeah, in my introductory remarks, I talked about um, these spending bills, but the spending bills are really different than a stimulus check. Um, yeah. So, um, and, and its distinguishing feature is uh, here's some money versus uh, we're going to create some, you know, jobs which will pay you money, which you can then spend on whatever you want. And so there's a little bit of a delay as it gets its uh, money, employment dollars into the stock market. But that being said, these are um, the two main ways to use Keynesian stimulus methods to kickstart the economy. How do you think about um, the proposed bill? I thought it was going to, I remember it was supposed to pass today even, um, in the Senate, the, the trillion-dollar um, infrastructure bill, and there's also talk of a $3.5 trillion uh, additional spending bill. How will that work its way through um, the economy and into the stock market? And if so, um, how will that affect um, different parts of the stock market? Will that mean that you know, in the long run this will be very helpful for the most speculative names? Um, how do you think about this massive new increase in spending? Um, so I think on the trillion dollar package, my understanding is it is going to take place over a, a very long period of time. And so it's quite large, but it is, uh, not nearly as large as the dollars that we've seen over the past two or three years. That's not, again, it's, it's maybe that's just, uh, just putting things in, in, in perspective. Second thing I would say is I think what would, one would like to do is to figure out where, the returns are going to end up, whether they're going to be returns on capital or whether they're going to be primarily returns on labor. If they are returns on capital, uh, that will largely end up in the stock market or certainly reflected in the stock market. Um, if it ends up, for example, being largely construction dollars, then we're going to see it'll end up bidding up wages, for example, in particular segments of the economy, and there will be a Keynesian multiplier associated with that. Um, but then under the presumption that the Fed can uh, get its act together and um, respond to any potential sort of overheating. I think that at least has the potential to be uh, to be neutral. Uh, but it's not an issue that I've studied in detail or thought about other than this question, which is, as, as I said, is a really good one. As a public policy matter, um, the ideas were to help uh, our most distressed um, workers are most distressed population, um, and not help the um, the wealthiest Americans. And yet, what you described in the stock versus flow argument of, of cash movement is that what it results is is this infusion into the stock market, uh, which results in a five times multiplier um, on other stocks uh, and increases valuation. Effectively, increases the wealth of the wealthiest Americans. Um, is that is, is there anything we can do about that so that we can um, help help the poor but not help the, uh, the wealthy by a, a factor of five more than it was supposed to? Um, how do you think about that as a public policy matter? Um, I, th I think in the first round of stimulus checks, 
uh, you're trying to get dollars into people's hands as quickly as you can, and you are okay with um, a bunch of slippage. So I'll just give you an example. There was a huge controversy around this time that was all over the media about stimulus checks going to dead people or people getting mm-hmm. two checks and some people not getting them and so on. And I think you just, you just have to treat that as a cost of doing business. Otherwise, how do you get the dollars out there quickly in that, in that moment? I think once we're in March of this year, I think where we're sending out the third round of $400 billion, I, my personal opinion on it is that it wasn't particularly well targeted, and we should be much more careful in how well and in, in how we how we target uh, these kinds of programs. Otherwise, we are going to be subject to exactly the critique that you just made. Um, you know, it's interesting that these sort of payment ideas uh, came from originally the most progressives uh, in America. They like Yang was recommending this when he ran for president. Um, but it seems that it's been adopted only in very peculiar times in order to get money out as a rush. Um, but if we, we had more into this reverse income tax sort of situation where we were in the business of giving checks to our poorest Americans uh, on a general, as a general ongoing matter, what have you learned that would either improve it or give you pause for such a program? I think we've we've learned tons of things that not not related to this particular work that I've told you about, but we've learned, for example, that all of the state unemployment systems are not connected with the same IT systems, so getting checks out is difficult. Um, I think we have learned that if you give checks to the wealthiest Americans, they do end up in savings of of, of some form. Um, I last thing I would say is this period is quite different. In fact, I'll admit to just being spectacularly wrong in my thinking on this early in the pandemic, because what I had not anticipated was how uniting COVID would be for the Democrats and the Republicans on certainly on the issue of spending. Uh, I mean, the floodgates were opened very quickly. And even now, the most recent stimulus package, there was, frankly, there was, much less Republican opposition uh, to uh, to this package than, for example, during the financial crisis when it was very hard to get dollars into the economy. If you think about just the early months of Obama, um, it was just such a different climate and perspective on uh, on effective uh, rele- releasing these dollars. So I I actually think I just to interrupt you for a second. Uh, do you think the difference was uh, if you remember the debate about TARP, for example, um, what seemed to upset the Republicans was that this was handouts to banks and poor lending decisions. And what distinguished this time was the checks were going not to corporations, but directly to individuals who lost their jobs, most likely related to COVID, which was not their fault type of thing. Yeah, no, I, that that's exactly what I mean. I think I think that that was what that was uniting. Uh, it was. Uh, it was through no fault of anyone's that that we ended up that um, these households and small businesses got in this situation. Uh, by the way, just as a, as a side note, I would say that even the most recent round of these checks uh, has been very poorly targeted. For example, there's this program called the Restaurant Revitalization Fund, and it turns out the formula 
for how they uh, send send money to restaurants. This is only over the past couple months. Is that it is the 2019 revenues minus any dollars that were sent to those that restaurant through these programs uh, last year. So essentially, they're reimbursing these restaurants and making them whole on all of their all all revenues, even though they had less costs. The landlords gave, uh, often kept them mm-hmm. a break on rent and so on. So it's just um, and, and you know you, you could probably pick examples where that made sense, but in general, as a public policy matter, that just seems like a very poorly designed and poorly targeted program. Um, we had you on a show, Robin, early on, thinking about uh, streamlining the bankruptcy process, um, and there was an expectation uh, throughout the community that we were going to have a lot of bankruptcies, uh, but it doesn't seem like we had many. Um, was it these programs that prevented the bankruptcy? Why were there so few bankruptcies, and what what can we learn from that? I think we still need to do a full accounting of what happened. I think uh, two two main forces. One is that there was an incredible stimulus program that we've been talking about today, and that saved a lot of a lot of these businesses. The second is that. You made note of this actually in your introductory remarks today. Businesses are much more fluid. They start and stop all the time. I think what I was surprised by was that the businesses were able to start, stop, and then essentially restart in exactly the same form. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that was quite different from the ordinary, let's call it the ordinary flow of capitalism, where businesses get on, go through hard times, then they shut down, and then a better business restarts in its place. Um, so I think... All of this was was fairly surprising to me, and I think that the exact magnitude of these different forces, I think, is still to be worked out. Um, but there, there's tremendous learning, I may, and maybe there's even a third force, which is that we've learned how creative and resilient American businesses can be uh, in the face of in the face of these challenges. Yeah, and I would add the incredible resilience in the labor markets as well. It's just shocking too. Um, yeah, I had a question for Robin. This is John. Petricelli. So I, growing up in my entire life, I've heard people from outside of the United States, Europeans, people all over the world say that, that they work to live, but they often get the impression that Americans live to work. And I've, I've never been so sure about, about that. Um, do, do you think that the stimulus package and the variations in people going back to work or not going back to work speak at all to that belief in any way? John, thank you for the question. I, um, I thought of, I thought about this issue about whether the our overall social contract in the United States is being rethought, and uh, perhaps because of the shock of COVID, perhaps indirectly because of COVID, because of the what it has done to the labor market, particularly on the low end of the wage spectrum. I, I, I don't know the I don't know the answer to that. I think it's certainly possible that it has changed um it has changed that i worry a bit about over interpreting based on what's happened on the high end of the income distribution so i think you know if you speak to people of tremendous means uh and uh, income or wealth they will say things like i'm going to rethink the way that i live my life the way that i commute all of these things and i don't know how far down that translates the wage spectrum I suspect uh, much less, 
but but I'm not sure. But in any case, I think it's a very interesting conjecture, and you know, it'll take the next couple of years for us to figure that out. Okay, Robin, thank you. Uh, we're heading to our second speaker, Bruce Tuckman. Uh, Bruce, as I mentioned, is the former chief economist at the CFTC, the Commodities Futures Trading Company Commission, which is an independent government agency. Bruce uh, was a previous rapporteur and professor at NYU, uh, and I'm very interested in learning from Bruce um, what it was like to move from the private sector to an independent government agency. Bruce, go ahead. Thanks, Larry. So having spent all of my life really in the private sector, the thing that struck me the most about my time at the CFTC is how much power and discretion an independent, agent, an independent agency has in its work, and even more so how our system of government is designed to try to check, that, to check that power and discretion. So first of all, what makes an agency independent? The answer is actually different for different agencies. But for the CFTC, it's the fact that the commissioners are of course appointed by the president, confirmed by the Senate, but then they cannot be removed except for cause unlike the Secretary of the Treasury that the President could fire at any time. That's the first thing. The second thing is that the CFTC rules have the force of law, but they're not reviewed by the White House. They don't go through the, um, the White House the way the Department of Labor regulations would do so. So as a result, the agency, in particular the chair who manages the staff, has an enormous amount of discretion. What do I mean by discretion? Well, what rulemakings you're going to take up. Uh, the Dodd-Frank rulemaking, for example, took 10 years at the CFTC, and the SEC, another independent agency, is actually still going on Dodd-Frank. So there are actually a lot of choices you can make along the way. Another part of the discretion is how to interpret congressional statutes. Uh, there's a lot of discussion in the, in the courts about that, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But how, how do you interpret what Congress told you to do? There's also no action letters, which is a lot of what a, an agency does, which is say, hey, in a particular situation, a particular actor doesn't have to follow this rule on a temporary basis, on a permanent basis, because their situation is slightly different. And then finally, where to focus enforcement. So in a world of limited resources, choices have to be made about which cases are going to be brought against uh, people who are violating the, uh, the rules of the agency. So now, what are the checks on this very broad power and discretion? So I'm going to list five checks. The first one is Congress. So Congress can drag the chair in and, and ask questions and hold hearings, which, uh, which of course, uh, depending on what their views are, can be, can be pleasant or unpleasant. Congress also sets the budget each year for the CFTC. Now, this is actually less of a check for other agencies. So the SEC, for example, has its own sources of money from, from fees from the industry. And the Fed, of course, has its own uh, its own revenue-making machine there. But for the CFTC, that was a check because they had to uh, ask Congress for money every year. The only, I would, the only thing I would say about that check is not all issues raised rise to Congress's attention. That has to be certain kinds of issues that it's going to get Congress to think about things like that. The second check is the fact that there are minority commissioners. So there are three commissioners from the party of the president, president and two from the other party. So non-controversial rules are just going to pass through an internal process. Every commissioner is just going to sign off, and it's done. It has the force of law. But any commissioner can refuse to go through that process and force a public meeting and a vote on the rule. And the minority commissioner can dissent publicly. And that is a great, I think, incentive to negotiate and compromise and come to the right place. I really was impressed that this is an extremely big deal, and this is a very personal opinion why I don't like the single commissioner structure at the CFPB, because you don't have these other commissioners who are very involved in the issues who can get up and dissent publicly. Uh, 
Uh, the third of the five checks I want to talk about, and this is something I knew nothing about before I entered government, is the uh, APA or the Administrative Procedures Act. So there are a whole set of rules about making rules. There are two types of lawyers at the CFTC. There are the securities law lawyers who worry about securities law, and then there are the APA lawyers who are all about how you go about making rules. Um, I think I'm not a lawyer, so I'm sure I'm not going to get this 100% right, but the basic idea is rules have to come from reasoned decision-making. They can't be arbitrary and capricious, which is one of the legal phrases. And this is reviewable by courts. So the courts can decide if a particular rule follows these, uh, follows these uh, criteria. And there's a big debate in the legal profession, which I'm not super qualified to talk about, about how much courts should defer to agencies when they make the rules. And another part of the APA, which is very important, is that when an agency is going to make a rule, it has to make a proposal, give notice that it's thinking about making a rule, open up the proposal for public comment. And all serious comments will be read and will be addressed in the rulemaking. So if anyone on this call has a view about something an agency is doing and they write it, it's, it's almost 100% sure it's going to be read and like, very extremely likely it's going to be addressed in the final rulemaking. So the result of that, rulemaking takes a lot of time. It's particularly difficult for a new administration to come in and reverse course from a proposal that's already existing. How do you make the argument that, hey, this agency stood before the public and said, this is the most sensible thing to do, and now you're doing something completely different? And of course, every administration has a limited amount of time in which to do things. Uh, the fourth of the list of checks that I want to talk about are uh, cost-benefit considerations. So rules under certain statutes, like the Commodity Exchange Act, which is what the CFTC works with, require cost-benefit consideration. So when a proposal is made, you have to list out all of the costs and benefits uh, of what's going to be the effect, the impact in this rule. You don't have to weigh them one against another, but you have to list them. And a rule can be challenged in court if important costs and benefits are omitted. Now, interesting, uh, interestingly, cost-benefit considerations are not required of all statutes. For example, the Bank Holding Company Act does not require a cost-benefit considerations in rulemaking under that act, uh, and that's where the Volcker Rule lives. The Volcker Rule didn't have to do that, as a lot of other uh, Dodd-Frank rules had to do. And then the final check, the fifth and final check I want to talk about is civil servants. So civil servants have lots of protections. A new administration <clears throat> has existed in the founding of our country. The new administration can no longer come in and just fire everyone and, and start from scratch. There are also detailed procedures for hiring senior civil servants to prevent what's called borrowing. And that's a word I did not know, again, before joining the government. And that's when a uh, political appointees try to hire senior civil servants, sorry, try to hire other political appointees as civil senior civil servants. And there are a lot of procedures to prevent that from happening. I, for example, was not allowed on a particular hiring committee because I was a political appointee. So on the whole, I would say, I think that civil servants that, you know, that I bumped into and worked with responded very well to direction from the chair, recognizing the new administration, here's what the chair wants to do, and uh, uh, that chair is confirmed by the Senate, we should do that. But of course, in theory, it's possible for senior servants to have their own agenda or to slow walk uh, any particular administration. So Larry, those were most of my prepared remarks. Should we stop there? Sure. Um... You know, you just remind, I wasn't planning to talk about this, but, um, you know, I can't imagine you know many people, but I wrote a, a public uh, note to the CFTC about a rule change. Um, uh, here was the, the background. Um, the CME uh, wanted to change the definition of an existing futures contract. It was the Eurodollar future. 
and it said uh, previously the CME was going to take a defined LIBOR, which is this uh, London interbank offering rate, and they had asked 40 banks for the for the rate, and they were going to replace it with um, a, uh, the BBA rate, which was the British Bankers Association was just 16 banks, aver- dropping the four highs and lows and leaving with just eight. Anyway, I wrote a letter with Marcy Ingo, the general counsel at Solomon, uh, to the CFTC saying that you can't change an existing contract and that we were opening up a possibility for um, abusing and uh, cheating to go on in the LIBOR resets. Uh, and I wrote that letter with Marcy in 1996. Um, and then sure enough, there was a LIBOR um, crisis that was caused by cheating in 2008. But when I sent that letter to the CFTC asking them to look into it and put in the public discussion, um, there was an expectation that very little would be done. And in fact, um, nothing was done, even though eventually I happened to have been right on that issue. Um, how do you think of the that process um, working? Um, why do you think that if People write letters on these subjects who are in the industry, who actually know a little bit about what's going on. Why isn't that stuff taken seriously? Um, why should we think that is an effective check? Right. So from my experience, Larry, all of letters written by – I mean, there are some crank letters, but putting that aside, all letters that come in are read. So in other words, a proposal goes out. There's a certain notice and comment period that passes. Then the letters come in, and the people who are in charge of that, in that rulemaking do read all of the letters. And they send out a memo um, that describes what, you know, categorizing letters and what they say and what the arguments are, and then address those in the final rulemaking. You know, a lot of people joke, and this is also something I didn't understand before I was there, a lot of people joke about how big rulemakings are, that there's several hundred, hundred, several hundred pages all these rulemakings. But the truth is the rule itself is actually quite small. The rule might be 30 pages, and then it might be 200 pages of discussion, uh, which includes things like the um, uh, the uh, summary of the comments and responses, if any. So it's not that they're going to necessarily listen to you or wait what you say a lot, but they will have read it, and if they think it's material, they will address it. And that's all you could ask for, to be heard. You know, it's not that you can, you know, you're not going to, an individual person is not going to, is going to have trouble getting in in front of the people. Now, of course, uh, there's also this notice and comment period includes um, groups of people, whether it's uh, banks who are affected, whether it's public interest groups who are affected, there are various consumer groups who come in. So gr- after a proposal has uh, been made uh, and the notice period is finished, people can come in and face the people who are doing the proposals and talk about them. And it's not that hard to get an appointment. I mean, one thing my first week or two, people said, you know, we're the government, our job is to listen. We're supposed to listen to when people come with comments. So my experience is that process happened. If you wanted a meeting, even, you know, I take it back, maybe even as an individual, if you want a meeting with the people who are writing the rules uh, to make through your points, I believe that will be scheduled. You know, whether you get your way or not is a completely different question. Bruce, can, can Robin, Robin here asking a question. Um, what I would love to get your take on how effective cost-benefit analysis is with respect to rulemaking. I mean, I've often found that, especially in financial matters, I mean, it's not about, we're not asking a factory to make an investment to curb pollution. But in financial matters, just as an example, suppose you were to ask a bank to increase its capital, overall capital ratio. 
it seems like the costs and benefits seem very are very difficult to measure. And I was just wondering, in your experience, uh, how effective and on point you found the cost benefit analysis. Yeah, no, excellent. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that goes to the heart of the matter. So. The answer is that in some places we have data and some places we don't, right? So one of the difficulties with Dodd-Frank rulemaking is you're moving from one set of managing the derivatives markets to another, and how are you going to, how are you going to do any analysis on that when there's no data? But as the, as the years have gone by, more and more data is available to the CFTC. So, for example, when the first Dodd-Frank rules were passed, there was no data at all about swaps trading, right? Swaps hadn't been reporting. But then in 20, I think it's 2014, data started to be collected. So when you had the next round of rulemakings in 2018 or 2019, there was a lot of data around to say, hey, this is, this is who's trading what, and this is at what prices, and you know, this, is, this is how markets have reacted to this. So there was a lot to say. So um, it really does depend on the situation, but I, it, I, think it's still, so I think it's still a good discipline to go through and try to do it, figure out whatever data you can. Let's take another example, like position limits has been around for a long time, but we have a lot of data on that. So it's a very tricky rulemaking in a lot of ways, but uh, we do have data. So, I, so Robin, I think the answer is there are some places we have a lot of data, some places we don't, especially conceptually when we're changing the way things are done dramatically, um, it's hard to do it. But I'll also give one other kind of data that's available. So let's say like in a capital rule, which I think you mentioned, we can at least try to figure out how the rule will affect people, like just how much extra capital it would be in that example, right? Or we tell people have to behave in this way. How many people will be affected by that rule? One of the, um, one of the larger contributions I made actually when I, was, when I was sitting in that seat was that these new margin rules uh, were coming into place. So uh, Dodd-Frank requires that you either clear or you have to post margin on uncleared trade. Um, and there were a few uh, rounds of companies large companies starting to post margin on their uncleared trades. And then there was going to be a time when a lot of smaller entities needed to do it. And the industry was, was kind of going crazy. And they say there were just too many, too many entities that need to do this at the same time. There are only a few people to work out the documents, only a few people to, to be collateral services, et cetera. Um, and we had the data to go through and see exactly how many it was and what options were available to the agency. Oh, if you do it this way, you'll, you can uh, make the effect more gradual. So again, Robin, you're exactly right, but I would say that there is a whole spectrum of things that we can say and things that we cannot say, but I personally thought the discipline was useful to have in place. Bruce, what is it, um, how do you motivate uh, the bureaucracy to achieve uh, your goals, the, the political uh, party's goals? Um, I just imagine that there's these lifetime workers and then there's uh, workers like you who are there for a couple of years to get some stuff done, but they know they're going to outlast you by decades. Um, how do you successfully motivate them to achieve your objectives? Right. So let me, let me just make the question a little harder before I try to answer it. I'll make it a little harder by saying it's, you know, I had never really worked in a, with these civil servant protections and also in a union shop, which the CFTC became actually during the early stages of the Dodd-Frank rulemaking. So that's another thing that you have to get used to. And I would say, I really do think, you know, people say, oh, it's so much easier in the private sector because the private sector, it's only money. And if you pay people money, they'll do things. But I found in my experience, it's not actually true. People are motivated by a lot of things. Of course, money is important in the private sector, but there are other things. 
So, you know, in the agency, um, just for example, you know, giving people time in front of the commissioners uh, when they have something to say, of course, uh, letting people present at public meetings. I mean, there are a lot of things actually that, that people want to do and feel like they're contributing to the, to what the, what the commission is doing uh, and what, you know, what government service is supposed to be like. So there are other ways uh, to motivate people aside from, you know, what we in the private sector immediately think. I also think that there, it's not universal as I think I hinted at, but, you know, it's something, it's, it's a little different feeling working in government for a chair than it is working for your boss, boss in private industry, right? You work for your boss in private industry and the idea is, oh, that person's there now, but who knows? Maybe they'll be knocked off. You know, maybe they'll be knocked off soon. Maybe they'll have an unsuccessful time. Maybe something will happen, right? And their authority is kind of dependent on what you think their prospects are and how they'll help you. And it's different in the public sector because the chair and the other commissioners were appointed by the Senate. And that gives them uh, a power and authority that's quite strong. And I think most people who are in government feel that keenly and, you know, are not nilly-willy willing to, to replace their judgment with the judgment of a Senate-confirmed uh, appointee and chair. So the only last thing I'll say is I think um, it's hard to say, but it's just a general management thing, which is, you know, you've got some people who are who are willing to work and you've got to figure out the way to motivate them. And some people are not willing to work and you have to decide as a, as a manager, how are you going to, how are you going to deal with that? But I don't know that's so much different in the public and private sectors. And again, I don't have any private sector experience in a, in a union shop or in a, you know, and again, with civil servants where firing is so much more difficult. George Sigler uh, won the Nobel prize in economics and one of his major ideas was that government agencies could be co-opted by industry. Um, even though these agencies were meant to regulate industry, it turns out that uh, industry is very good at co-opting these agencies to work for on behalf of them to create monopolies and benefits to existing firms. Um, how do you think about Stigler's work after uh, your time in, in an independent agency? Yes, so the, yeah, that's a, that's a great point too. And I have thought about that a lot. So the real, the real tension is that, listen, the people in the agency do very well to follow markets and what's going on. You know, like compared to, you know, to most people in the universe, they know what's going on in markets. You know, they, there are specialists. If you want to know about what's going on in cattle, there's someone who will sit down and talk to you for three hours about what's happening in cattle markets or what's happening in oil markets. So there's a lot of knowledge in the industry, but that's not exactly the same kind of knowledge as someone who's sitting and trading all day. It's, it's different, right? I mean, the people of the government will have a better idea of the institutional structure in which you work, but the trader will know more about markets, et cetera. So the problem is that you're making rules about this industry, but the people who know the most about it are the, um, you know, are the people in the industry. So if you want to do your job well in that seat in the government, you have to go and you have to ask, ask the industry questions and ask what's going on. And you have to, you know, take everything appropriately, you know, listen to what they say, but realize where people are coming from and what their self-interest is. I will say there also, there are a number of entities that, that are designed to represent consumers or people not, not in the industry in these, uh, and also, of course, also all these end user groups, et cetera. 
But it is true that I think the people you're talking about, about quote unquote capturing the agency, those people are kind of better funded. They've got more people. They've got full-time people coming in to talk to the agency all the time. So and they again, really know me, the implications of these rules. Right. So to me, the real tension, right. So the, to me, the real tension is how do you navigate really wanting to understand what's going in the market and not overweighting the, the opinions that follow from those facts from the people who are coming in. And I say one thing, I really, you know, the chairman who appointed me, uh, Chris Giancarlo, I, I really admired him in a lot of ways. And he went around saying that he is market friendly, not industry friendly. And that, you know, that I think is something that was something that you have to aspire to. But again, the knowledge thing is just tricky and you have to have to work to navigate that. But I will say just maybe we, just to finish up, I did not feel that the people in the agency were bullied. You know, and as I think, you know, they stood the ground when they believed something. When people came in, they asked questions, they wanted to learn. But they, I think they, on the whole, um, uh, you know, held the line where they thought it was important to do so. You opened your talk by talking about discretion and power um, and that really um, these rules are very vague and um, the people in the agency could sort of do what they wanted or, or follow what they thought was right. Um, and that there was all sorts of checks on those power. But at the end of the day, it's really about discretion. How, how should we think about vague rules and discretion in this sort of when, it, when the power is so great in the hands of so few? Yeah, so that's, yeah. So yeah, these are all great questions, Larry. So let me, why don't I just give one example that we can talk about in the context of, right? So Dodd-Frank says that swaps have to be traded on swap execution facilities, some sort of exchange. The statute says that trading has to be done by multiple, to, multiple participants by any means of interstate commerce. That's what the statute says. The, first, the early years of Dodd-Frank rulemaking, the, CF, the CFTC interpreted that to mean that these SEFs, these swap execution facilities, have to set up a central limit order book or they have to have a request for quote from three dealers. I'm not going to get into what those things are, but those are very, very specific, um, specific kinds of trading mechanisms. So the question is, well, you know, where does that come from? You know, the statute said any means of interstate commerce and you have those things. And that is the CFTC rule now, by the way, and I don't think that's being challenged anymore. But that's, you know, that's, a, that's an example of, the, of, of a few things, right? It's an example of Congress deciding, you know, not to get into the weeds and not make that tough call about what it meant, uh, you know. So they saw general things they wanted to do about swap execution facilities, but they, you know, they didn't go into the weeds in the statute. So how far should they go? So a lot of people, and I don't, I don't know if I know enough to really have a strong opinion myself about this, but a lot of, a lot of people say that Congress... Uh, send a lot too much. That's why I don't have an opinion. It's a very broad statement. But a lot of people think that Congress sends way too much to the agencies without being specific enough. So the fault is not in the sense of the agencies. They get this broad thing and they need to do something they do that they feel is in the spirit of the statute. Um, but it's sort of Congress's issue that they haven't been uh, much more specific about things. I'm sorry, Larry. I've kind of forgotten. Have, have I captured everything you, you meant to ask That's in that fine. question? That's fine. Um, I want to ask a question now about this, uh, this Chevron decision. So uh, there was a Supreme Court case. Um, I think Scalia wrote the majority opinion in Chevron. But the idea was that, that 
Congress is effectively can delegate to the bureaucracy to do um, rulemaking, and it almost appears to be almost lawmaking. Um, and then there's been a significant pushback uh, in the courts against Chevron, uh, to your point, pushing rulemaking back to Congress and um, giving uh, discretion and rulemaking away from the agencies. Uh, and I think Kavanaugh and Gorsuch are kind of the leaders on the courts in this opposition to Chevron from a constitutional perspective. Um, well, just kind of thinking about what was the thoughts inside the agencies as they thought about um, Chevron coming under attack? Is that something they worry about? Is that something to think about? Um, and how, if anything, will, will the world change if, in fact, Chevron is overturned? Right. So listen, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not going to, I can't be too specific about Chevron. I think about Chevron as, uh, you know, how much you will defer to the agency's decision about interpreting statutes. You know, how, how far can they go in some sense and still be judged to say, hey, you're following, you know, Congress's will. And uh, the only thing I would say is, is I think the agency is very sensitive. They don't want their opinions over their, uh, sorry, their rules overturned in court. And that has happened. It's happened to both the SEC and the CFTC on certain matters. And they are, that's why they have the army of APA lawyers, because they don't want that to happen. Now, so they do, so that, that means that there's always an APA person on a rulemaking to say, hey, we have to address these comments. We have to address Larry's comment on this and this, or we're going to be in trouble in the courts. Or, you know, we have to establish this fact. It's not enough to go say it. The CBC has got to be stronger here and there. So the agency is very sensitive about that. So what, what Chevron is doing is it's kind of changing a little bit what needs the work that needs to be done to get, uh, to get the proposals to pass muster should they, should they be challenged. Uh, but I don't, you know, I don't remember anything particular about people viewing how that how that line is going to shift. You know, actually, you know, again, this is something I don't know about. I won't want to talk about it. But the very current event right now is, of course, the the CDC's eviction, um, uh, you know, extending of the eviction yeah. prohibition, whatever it's called. And the thing that I found striking about that episode, given my experience, is that the CFTC again was just incredibly concerned about being overturned. So whereas this was very different, this was saying, yeah, we'll be overturned, but we can push off the date in a way that's in the benefit of the public interest. So that, that's a very different kind of calculation. It's not the point of this call to decide if that's right or wrong, but that's very different from saying, hey, we can only do things that you know, are going to survive a challenge in court because that's the extent of our power. Well, when you distinguish that in this example, it went all the way to the president, and the president decided to act on these sort of things. So, you know, the agency itself wasn't on the line so much as it, it joined um, an executive political decision. I don't think I agree with that, Larry. I mean, again, um, yeah. in the CFTC, the president can't order the CFTC to do something. Any that's not the way the system works. And I try to to give that. I try to give the feel of all the processes we have and. The agency has to put together a rule by, sub, by rule. You know, there are rules in making rules, and those have to be followed. And if the president comes to the agency and say, hey, you've got to do something, say, well, no, we've got to follow these APA rules. There's no, there's no exception to the APA rules from a direct mandate from the president. My I'm not a lawyer, you, but that's, that's the way I see it. My last question to you, Bruce, relates um, to the anti uh, FTC. Is the next. I know this is outside your expertise, but I kind of would like you to weigh in on it. 
So next week um, on the show, we're having my college roommate, Josh Sovin, talk about uh, Lena Khan and the uh, anti-big tech uh, um, ideas coming out of uh, the FTC. So of all the independent agencies, the progressives have been most successful um, in finding leadership at the FTC. And Lena Khan has announced that she is going to go after big tech in a big way. Um, but one of the interesting things that you talked about was um, how having a three Democrats and two Republicans results in moderation because it's public, because there's dissent. Um, how do you think that process will work when you really have such polarized views in implementation of public policy? And given that the, the chair has such enormous discretion as to who, why, what, where they're going to attack, uh, and she's already publicly come out uh, in her writings um, before taking government that she wants to go after the big five tech firms. How do you think sh that the checks and balances will work in this sort of independent agency, purely from a speculative point of view, Bruce? I tell you, Larry, that's just so far. That's just so far away from what I know about. I, I think I got to pass mm -hmm. on that one. Okay, that's fine. All right. With that, I'm going to move on to our final speaker, John Petrocelli, who is going to talk about uh, detecting bullshit. Um, I, I want to open up by saying that approximately 15 years ago at Book Club, um, I had philosopher uh, Harry Frankfurt from Princeton uh, speak to my book club about his book entitled On Bullshit. And it had a, a very dramatic effect on, on me and my uh, philosophy on uh, thinking about bullshit. And it, it did uh, for John as well. And John uh, has dedicated a substantial portion of his research um, and thinking about uh, Frankfurt's work and its application. Um, and so, John, I very much look forward to hearing from you about how to detect um, all that bullshit that's out there. Go ahead, John. Yes, thank you. Yeah. And I'd like to talk today a bit about um, how our world is simply awash with misinformation, disinformation, fake news, hoax news, fabricated news, inaccurate news, spin, and deception. And a common thread through each of these sources is a pervasive and insidious communicative substance that we commonly refer to as bullshit, which is not just a cutesy or intentionally provocative word, but now a technical term as used in philosophy and psychology, to signal that something has been communicated without regard for truth, genuine evidence, or established knowledge. And bullshitting behavior is often characterized by the use of rhetorical strategies designed to disregard truth, evidence, or established knowledge, such as exaggerating one's knowledge, their competence, or skills, or talking about things of which one knows little to nothing about, in order to embellish or impress others, fit in with others, influence or persuade others, or to confuse or hide the fact that one really doesn't know what they're talking about. And the worst outcomes of bullshit communications are false beliefs and bad decision-making. A surprisingly and disturbingly large percentage of really smart people believe that storing batteries in the freezer will improve their performance, that you can see the Great Wall of China from space, that people who own cats live longer than people who don't, that wines become finer with age, and that diamonds are a sound investment. But none of these things are actually true. In my research, I found a very big problem 
and that is that most everyone thinks they can readily detect bullshit and thereby feels unaffected by it, despite research clearly demonstrating that bullshit is not easily detected. And no matter how smart we believe ourselves to be, we're all susceptible to bullshit. In fact, research shows that people who are most confident in their ability to detect bullshit are often the least capable. And this is because the mental skills that one needs to be competent in something are often the very same mental skills one needs to recognize their own and others' competence in that domain. But fortunately, there's a, a more scientific basis to hold this whole thing, and we can approach it as such. And this kind of rational method will help us actually understand and overcome bullshit more effectively. Now, bullshitting is sometimes confused for lying, but there are critical differences between bullshitting and lying. Liars actually know and care about the truth, and a liar's agenda is to detract us from the truth altogether. Liars also don't believe what they say. Bullshitters, on the other hand, often do believe what they say, but they don't know what the truth is. They don't really care. They aren't even trying to know. And in fact, sometimes by chance, bullshitters say something correct, but even they wouldn't know it because they aren't paying attention to truth established knowledge or evidence for their claims. If I said to you Pluto is a planet, and I know perfectly well that it is not, then I'm lying to you. However, if I said Pluto is a planet without any care for its truth, such that I don't even know if it's true or false, then I'm bullshitting you. Now, like most people, you probably believe that bullshit is harmless, and if anything, less insidious than that of lies. Besides, no one is harmed when our uncle claims that in 1982 he was capable of throwing a football over a mountain. And if bullshitting children that a special compound in the swimming pool water reveals the presence of urine helps to prevent such unwanted behaviors, perhaps some bullshit is even beneficial to society. Yet the, the notion that bullshit is completely harmless just isn't so. Some bullshit clearly has harmful potential. For example, did you see her face? Who would vote for a face like that? This sort of bullshit is just plain bad. It, it degrades, it objectifies women, and suggests that women can't be good leaders unless they're attractive. Furthermore, some bullshit is dangerous because it is able and very likely to cause harm. For instance, I can text while driving without any effects on my performance. You know that everybody does it. I don't see the problem. No, no, no. This, is, this bullshit is not only incorrect, but it promotes a flippant attitude toward compelling evidence that suggests otherwise, and a belief in it can cause direct harm to society writ large. My research suggests that bullshit can have several negative effects on memory, attitudes and opinions, and most importantly, decision-making. Bullshit affects these things because it impacts what we believe to be true, and what we believe to be true is fundamental to human behavior. Bullshit-based beliefs can come with great costs. It's not only the stuff of unreasonable markups that we often pay for used cars, real estate, wine, jewelry, and so many other things. It's the stuff of Bernie Madoff's success in swindling billions of dollars from even the most experienced financial experts with his Ponzi scheme. And it's the stuff underlying the protocols of China's great leap forward under the direction of Mao Zedong, which resulted in the deaths of 36 million people from starvation. It's the stuff of Andrew Wakefield's fraudulent research 
that has led to the well-debunked assertion that the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine causes autism in children. And it's the stuff of senseless conspiracy theories that compel people to storm their own country's Capitol building in hopes of reversing a fair election. Now, from 10 years of empirical research on the topic and speaking with hundreds of expert bullshit detectors, I'm convinced that all of our problems, whether they be personal, interpersonal, professional, or even societal, are either directly or indirectly linked to mindless bullshit reasoning and communication. Most people are susceptible to the unwanted effects of bullshit because the mental skills that protect them from it do not come naturally. They must be trained. And part of being a good bullshit detector involves recognizing when and under what conditions we are likely to encounter it. And that, that is what my research has been about. Thanks, John. Um, you know, Frankfurt talks about um, that the trouble with bullshit is it's insidious to institution, it, it corrupts from within. And that an institution itself needs to find ways to call out bullshit. Um, in any organization, there's plenty of bullshit. Whose job is it to detect it, call it out, and remove it? And why are certain institutions more tolerant to bullshit than others? Yeah, well, I'll start with the latter part of, of that question. Um, one of the reasons that we're so tolerant of it is because we don't expect it to have a negative effect on our Mm -hmm. thinking, our reasoning, we assume that it's harmless. Uh, We don't even talk about bullshit in the same way that we talk about lies. I mean, you and I might be sitting on a porch and and maybe Robin and Bruce come by and say, hey, what are you guys doing? And we, we might say, oh, we're just sitting out here bullshitting, right? Or, But mm-hmm. we wouldn't say, oh, well, we're sitting out here lying to one another, right? <laughs> and and the, the, social, the social reaction to, to the two different forms of behavior are completely different. If someone lies to us, we're usually pretty angry. We have uh, a lot of disdain for that behavior. And there's a large asymmetry in, in the trust uh, ratio. Now, now we usually give people the benefit of the doubt. We assume that pe- new people that we meet are are honest and trustworthy. But a single lie, now now we can't trust them. Now, now we need at least a hundred or two hundred instances in which they tell us the truth to to regain that trust and and, and an expectation of honesty. Um, the, that asymmetry isn't as great with with bullshitting. Usually, we give the bullshitter. Sort of a social pass of acceptance. We say, "Oh, we say, oh, Larry's just bullshitting us," you know, and and we think that it doesn't have an effect. But my my studies show that that that's clearly not the case when you focus on what people to, uh, actually believe to be true and what their attitudes and opinions are. Um, and those two things are are absolutely fundamental to to decision making. All right, so 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 that's one of the reasons why we tolerate it so much. And then the second reason for the former part of that question is is that the the communicative culture that we live in today um, is not practiced at calling bullshit. All right, and if we don't start at the top with the with with leaders, uh, managers, you know, uh, people who are are actually managing people um, and getting, gaining information, uh, important information. Um, that is often comes in the form of explanation, and explanation we know is often uh, counted as if it is evidence, right? But evidence and explanation are two totally different things. Evidence is something that supports a claim or an assertion. It's something that demonstrates, it verifies, 
It, it supports that that idea. Evidence may be a, a, a bunch of reasons for for why you believe what you believe, but it but it's it's it rarely it, does it come in the form of hardcore boots on the ground evidence that supports the claim. And so, as we continue to just accept that and and forget the the important difference between those two things, we're very unlikely to call bullshit when we see it. Um, and until we sort of create a community communicative culture that encourages evidence-based communication and evidence-based reasoning from the very top down, um, we're going to, I think we're going to continue to keep piling the bullshit on and, and making decisions based on, on this stuff. Let me try. Um, I want to give an example you had in your book and it related to when you go to the wine store comments uh, that are listed under a given bottle of wine. Sometimes it'll say something like um, chocolatey, uh, hint of blackberry um, with a coffee aroma. Mm -hmm. and, and you highlight and say that, you know what that is? That's just bullshit. It's bullshit because um, if we asked a, a group of different wine tasters, they would not come up with the same result. Um, what, do we, what do we make of that kind of bullshit? Well, it it certainly has a big effect on on what people purchase. I mean, at, at the wine shop, people wanted, you know, purchase something maybe special or for an occasion or something that they're going to like, and they assume that that wine sellers have tried all of the wine, you know, the thousands of wines in the shop. If you talk with with people who actually sell wine, um, usually they they don't know much more than than your common shopper at, at, at the shop. So they will pretty much buy anything that you suggest. If you say, oh, this was this this wine goes well with fish or steak, you know, they believe it. And and the and the words that, that are used, I mean everybody wants to drink you know, it it sounds fun to drink something that reminds you of a you know a a, a cozy cottage in the you know in a in a winter you know storm but but I mean the the language what we refer to this type of language as pseudo profound. A lot of this language that you see in wine, you also see in in corporate gibberish and in business speak. I mean words like um, you know bandwidth and leverage and win win um, and all of these types of words that are sort of they're kind of ambiguous fillers that make things sound more profound and more impressive than they actually are but but they're not helpful and they're not helpful in decision making um but people expect them and they are they they react to them as if they're card you know cardinal truth and and it's it's just something that continues to proliferate not only in wine, but I mean, if you switch to any really any industry, uh, whether it be automobiles, jewelry, real estate, I mean, they all have their own special language, uh, and people are, are expecting of that language, and and it does it does move us. But when you track back and say, well, what does that actually mean? What does it mean for for this to be a win-win situation? You know, um, you often find that. That there's really not much evidence for it. Maybe there's it's a win for one person, but not not the other. Um, so, if you think about things from a critical thinking standpoint and a scientific 
reasoning standpoint, you'll often find that the, the pseudo-profound language that you find in wine and almost any industry is really a lot of fluff. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a question from Jeremy Chlorphine. He asks, how would you distinguish uh, in the world of propaganda uh, lying and bullshit? Um, for example, make America great again or for Obama, hope and change. How do you think of those sort of lingos or, or, or propaganda as as bullshit? Well, see, obviously, some some propaganda is not grounded in in truth, genuine evidence, or established knowledge. That's for sure. But not all propaganda is bullshit. So if I give you some a set of facts, um, and and I am concerned about the truth value, and they happen to be true and well supported by the established knowledge or and evidence, then then that that could still be propaganda. But I wouldn't categorize it as bullshit. But but to the extent that you are trying to persuade and influence um, with things that have no connection to truth, then that would be propaganda that is bullshit. But there are many, many different motives of the bullshitter that have nothing to do with persuasion and influence and what we might use propaganda for. Um, there was a study done recently um, with hundreds of employees within a number of companies, and they defined for the employees what bullshit was in the same definition that I've been using. And, and they asked, well, why would you do this? What, why would you engage in this behavior? And they found 36 different situations and reasons why people would, would engage in bullshitting. And, and what it whittled down to um, were two dimensions, one of which was uh, status, so promoting one's status and trying to to appear knowledgeable and impressive and and um, worthy of of their of their position, and then the other was is simply communal value to get along with others, to connect with others, and to be part of the group. Um, and that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with 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 persuasion and, and influence. That's just simple connection. But another another important motive is simply to see what it feels like to say something and and see what reactions are actually like to something that you may not even really believe but but um has no again has no connection to truth established knowledge or or genuine evidence um and that's that's very different than sort of using propaganda to to change uh, to change attitudes and minds i i mentioned before that um that how can organizations call out bullshit um and I got a question from Jay Green. He asked the following. Um, we've had truth committees before in organizations, whether it be um, Soviet biologists or the Catholic Church, uh, which had a truth committee that declared that, in fact, the Earth was the center of the universe or was flat. Um, how should we think about the dangers of organizations uh, be truth, uh, truth seekers and calling out falsehoods or bullshit? Well, certainly, if, if if decisions are being made with no attention to truth and reality, um, we're in a, a very big mess, um, which is typically, quite frankly, the case. Um, and the reason for that, we know from you know, treasure troves of cognitive psychological research that that people are typically reasonable when they have information that they that they fully consider if someone's motivated if someone is not motivated to focus on truth 
you know, or connect their reasoning to truth, established knowledge, or genuine evidence. There's really, there's, I don't see much hope for that individual. But in general, people are usually reasonable thinkers. They'll take information that um, that they believe to be true, and then they'll make general inferences from that. But the problem is, is that most of the data that they get, most of the information they get comes from their own personal or maybe even professional experience. And we're we're often prisoners of the confines of our personal experience. And that type of experience provides extremely messy information, messy data. The data from that those experiences are often random, they're unrepresentative, they're often ambiguous, uh, certainly incomplete, often inconsistent, indirect, uh, second or third hand, and often surprising or counterattitudinal, not things that we necessarily want to be true or, or, or want to believe. Um, and so when you're making decisions based on that kind of data, um, it doesn't bode very well for optimal decision making. Uh, and it strikes me as a, as, a, as a very, you know, as a judgment and decision making researcher, it strikes me as a very odd thing for people to do. But again, people rely on that information and they, they rely on anecdotal from their personal experiences to justify the beliefs and attitudes that they have. And, and that's what they often feel that's all they need. I want to go to some very narrow definitions in linguistics and see if it upsets you or not. Um, in Frankfurt's work uh, on bullshit, he quotes Wittgenstein a little bit about uh, use of metaphor, for example. So I'll, I'll just give you an example from my real world. Um, yesterday, I went to my mom's house and helped her clean up the house. And I came home and I told my wife, she said, are you tired? I said, tired. I feel like I've been run over by a truck. Now, the reality is I've never been run over by a truck. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I doubt that I really felt like I was run over by a truck. I was uh, embellishing and exaggerating how I felt. Um, but do you find it was, by your definition, it was clearly bullshit. Um, but is it problematic or is that just the very nature of language and metaphor? Well, I think in that case, I mean, you sort of are hinting. Uh, I mean, you're, you're using the metaphor. You're hinting that you are at least open to the the connection to truth. Um, you're saying, I, I feel like and then if you follow that up at all it's all you need is a single question well what do you mean by that right what you know can you please clarify your claim and what we will find that's one of the best questions to ask a suspected bullshitter is to ask what is it exactly that you are saying um and what you'll find is bullshitters will usually take a couple of backpedaled steps and start to clean it up right away right because they'll actually listen to themselves and see how they'll realize well Maybe that didn't sound right, and they didn't actually mean that literally. So you're already exposing yourself to less bullshit. If you just clarify the claim, clarification is a major antidote to bullshit. But, but if you follow that up then with, so let's say you're still following that, and you say, yeah, I, <laughs> you know, and, and, you're, and you're giving me something that, that is really still, you think that, that the claim can be supported, and I would say, well, how is it that you know that that is true? You know, what, by what sort of evidence supports your conclusion by that? If you, if you ask how, you will usually get a, a, what we call a concrete construal of the event or, 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 the, or the situation, whereby people will be more likely to provide genuine evidence. If you ask why 
why do you feel like that, Larry? Then, then a lot of times what people will provide is sort of a, a, an abstract level of control, which gets at sort of their heady kind of values, and 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 you know, what you'll get is a lot of explanation. You won't get evidence for that. Um, but if you get if you get past how, then you can also ask, well, well, have you considered uh, another alternative? Have you have you considered <laughs> considered the fact that that if you actually got ran over a truck by a truck, we better rush you to the emergency room right now. Right? You know, have you considered alternatives to your assertion or your claim? All three of these questions will help you diagnose the individual's uh, interest and their regard for truth, established knowledge, and evidence for their claim. All right. I want to bring Robin Greenwood into this conversation for a second, but first I want to read a quote uh, from Henry Harry Frankfurt's book on bullshit. Here, here's the quote. Uh, why is there so much bullshit? He writes, bullshit is unavoidable whenever circumstances require someone to talk without knowing what he's talking about. Thus, the production of bullshit is stimulated whenever a person's obligation or opportunity to speak about some topic exceed his knowledge of the facts that are relevant to the topic. This discrepancy is common in public life where people are frequently impelled, whether by their own propensities or by the demand of others, to speak extensively about matters of which they are to some degree ignorant. Now, the reason I bring up the quote is that um, Robin uh, teaches a class at Harvard Business School, uh, an introductory to a finance class, where they use case studies. And at the beginning of these case studies, Robin calls um, randomly a, a particular student and asks them to open up the discussion um, and you know, present the case. Now, most students uh, uh, try to prepare, but on the whole, um, now they're being called in front of the whole class to make a case. And I imagine, because they don't know, they're, um, they're generally ignorant of the facts, that it requires a propensity to bullshit uh, to the classroom. Now, everyone knows that they could have been called. They recognize the challenge that Robin has asked them to do, and that to some degree, there's an extensive amount of bullshit. And I wonder if this process, as do you, as you think, does that encourage, um, you know, bullshitting sessions that uh, we're trained, we're training people uh, to speak on their feet and to allow for the production of a bullshit. Uh, I want Robin joining in as well as John. Uh, okay, go ahead, Robin. Robin. Go first. Uh, I don't want to give away too many tricks of the trade. But if, if, if my uh, bullshit detector goes off, uh, keep in mind that I have prepared for the case significantly more than even a prepared student. And so if I feel like somebody, I call on an opener and they're not ready, I draw them out and will ask follow-up questions such that it usually becomes apparent to the entire room that they're unprepared. And then they usually will, uh, in 90% of cases, just two minutes in say, I'm sorry, I didn't read the case. And then we move on. And that's not a great experience for them. And so smart people usually will make that admission earlier rather than, you know, get drawn out for two minutes. Well, I wasn't really thinking about um, kids that weren't completely unprepared. Um, but, you know, to some extent you do prepare, but now you're being asked to go beyond, um, I'll call it your, your, your knowledge base. So in any presentation, there's some truth-making um, and there's some bullshit. I don't think they're going to 
make complete falsehoods because they'll be called out of that. But there, there's a certain element of bullshit that's required to kind of, you know, make it to make the sale like the used car salesman that John mentioned. Yeah, and certainly the obligation that that people are supposed to have a an opinion about everything, um, I believe, has expanded in our our information overload world. Um, I mean, ever since the internet, uh, we not only were expected to have opinions about all of the major issues um, of the day, you know, the economy. I don't know, nuclear energy, uh, voting, who should vote, or capital punishment, all these big issues. You're still supposed to have uh, opinions about those things today. But now you're also supposed to have opinions about whether or not Game of Thrones ended early or whether or not people should be allowed to carry toy dogs in their purses and if Kim Kardashian should or shouldn't be famous and if her sister should or shouldn't be allowed to digitally modify their pictures on Instagram. I mean, the the things that people seem to um, have have or feel obligated to have an opinion about um, is it's just it's all over the place today. So, and I think that um, to the extent that that people feel that obligation and don't feel as though well I I haven't had a chance to 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 generate a well informed opinion about this because I don't really know enough yet. It, you never hear anyone say that. I mean, it's, it's very rare that, that people say that. Um, and even the way that, that if you if you take a look at the way debate teams are, are graded or, or rated in their ba- debates, I don't know if you've lo- looked at one, uh, but more recently what, what students will do in debate teams is they will rattle off in their five minutes, they will rattle off as many arguments as they possibly can, sometimes like 30 arguments. And then if the opposition doesn't have a chance to um, debunk or counter argue each of each, all 30 of those, then the ones that are not addressed are just assumed to be true. Uh, and there's, and they're scored as points, you know? So, and I think this, this kind of happens in our social discourse where if, if, if again, people have explanations for things that it's counted as, as logic incarnate truth, um, and ipso facto, you know, evidence, but it, but it's, it's clearly not. And, but it's just, I think socially, we just accept that. Um, and I think until we start using, uh, and, and recognizing the difference between evidence and explanation in our discourse, then, then I don't think we're going to get very far. Larry, this is Bruce. Can I jump in for one second? Sure. Yeah. So just because you've got my mind on my my Washington time, the one another thing I was very impressed by. When you went to the CFTC's com- commission meetings, when the commissioners were speaking, and I also had the privilege to sit in a few Supreme Court cases while I was in Washington, those levels of discussion were miles above other things that you hear uh, in the general, you know, political government arena. Um, you know, I don't know exactly what the cause of that is. It could be that, you know, the press is not standing, quoting, you know, five sentences out of, you know, out of context, or they're not looking for a small thing. Maybe that's, maybe that's one, but there are, there seems to be some settings where we can avoid a lot of things that, that John's talking about, uh, but most settings we can't. And I don't know, I, you know, I haven't analyzed what it is that makes a, makes a place conducive to serious thinking, but I did notice just a massive difference and wish that 
more Americans would be tuned into to those two places compared to things they listen to all the time. It's funny you should bring that up, Bruce. Um, I attended the Supreme Court session once in my life. Uh, I was a guest of my um, high school tennis partner, David Hoffman, who was a Rehnquist clerk. And he got me a seat uh, in the front row. And when I got there, Rehnquist uh, turned to, uh, I think it was uh, another justice, and said, I'd like you to read um, an opinion. And it was uh, Clinton versus Paula Jones. Uh, and he said, in a 9-0 decision, uh, we vote for Jones uh, that we can, um, you know, that, that Clinton can go ahead with, uh, they can go ahead with a lawsuit against Clinton um, and do a full investigation while he's still president. And what I, what I got, when I was listening to it, I was like, oh my God, uh, I don't think they're right. So even though you're there and it sounds very sophisticated, uh, they can still get the answers very wrong. Um, I want to go on a different path for bullshit for a second, and that relates to the application of fictional approaches in non-fictional settings. So uh, journalism changed uh, in the late 50s and early 60s with Tom Wolfe um, and um, Truman Capote. And I'm specifically thinking of uh, Truman Capote's book, In Cold Blood, where um, in what appeared to be a non-fictional work, uh, Capote put words and dialogue um, together, which was full fabrication. Uh, but it, it got to the gist of the matter. And ironically, um, in my own storytelling, um, my friend Bruce Tuckman, who listens to my stories, he'll always say, you know, Larry, I noticed uh, you were making up dialogue. And in all the dialogue, all the actors sound just like you, Larry. It's just inconceivable that your daughter would sound like that. Um, do you find it problematic in storytelling or in non-fictional settings where um, dialogue is uh, fabricated? Uh, but in some ways, what the author will tell you is, look, you know, in storytelling, you just want to get to the gist of the matter. Um, you know, what do you want from me? I wasn't there. Or who can remember exact dialogue? Do you find that problematic? Yeah, I, I would in terms of the weight that we give it um and if if it's if it's something that again that supports or demonstrates uh verifies uh a claim or assertion that is paramount that should be that information should be weighted much more heavily than an analogy um sometimes of which is false we call these things false analogies if they kind of fit the situation but they're not they're not quite correct um and people make leaps and bounds from them. And again, they, we would count them as sort of potential explanation, but they're not, uh, they should not be weighted in the judgment and the decision as much as something, you know, hardcore boots on the ground evidence uh, would, would do. I mean, we, we also know that, I mean, leading questions um, can change uh, judgments. Even if, you, even if you actually observed, if you were an eyewitness to uh, an event occurring where, where two cars crashed. If I ask you, well, how fast were the cars going when they hit each other uh, versus how fast were the cars going when they collided or how fast were they going when they smashed? You know, as, as, as I move further away from the, they hit, you know, the, the judgment of how fast they were going increases, right? So, so there are tricks that you can do with, with you know, 
discourse or yeah, analogies, fictional analogies that can get people to think as though they've got they've got a, an accurate picture of what actually happened or the way things are, how the world actually works. Um, but when you when you critically analyze it, you'll see that the center often does not hold, and it, it's certainly not going to hold as well as you know finely uh, collected, systematically collected data um, that goes well beyond anecdotes. Um, I'm talking about you know hundreds of observations um, for something. Um, for you know basic basic claims and assertions, um, not just a, a story, um, whether it be fictional or non-fictional. Robin, just to bring you back in, what are your thoughts on uh, the case study approach to um, truth-seeking um, and the role of bullshit in that process? Uh, that's a huge question. Uh, I think the, the the main benefit of the case method approach is that students can wrestle with the problem, put their put themselves in the seat of the protagonist, and explore it from multiple angles. As a result, compared to listening to it in a lecture or reading it in a book, they're much less likely to forget it. In fact, you know I've spoken with students who 20 years later remember a particular case study and the lessons from that case study, something you'll almost never get from, uh, you know, reading about portfolio theory in a textbook, just to give you an example. Um, now, having said that, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of chatter along the way that gets discarded in pursuit of that noble cause. So I, I guess I'm saying I'm okay with, with some of that. I think, I think the one, one thing I would add to this is you need a guide to, to take you through the BS. So um, as long as you have some clear thinkers uh, in, in a group, uh, whether that be the instructor guiding the discussion or you have great students who are able to see the core issues and take you past uh, the jargon or the misleading, any kind of misleading information, I think it works. And maybe a question for Bruce. Bruce, having been in the public sector and the private sector, um, is there more or less toleration for bullshit in, in one sort of institution than another? It's <laughs> um, a very big generalization, of course. Um, not quite sure. Not quite sure I'm going that. I think it's a little bit like I was saying before, that there are just certain settings that that bullshit is more natural. And I think, again, John was trying to get at that. And um, like, I think for, you didn't mention the academic world where I spent a lot of time also. <laughs> and there of, course yeah. is, there, of course, is some. But, you know, when, when, when people are like at a seminar, I mean, again, the other two people on the call can say what they think. I think a seminar, there's not a lot of bullshitting. I think people are trying to figure out what's going on and you can't get away with very much. I think in a serious talk and the government employees or, or business people, you know, you also get that. I think as the crowd gets larger, as the group gets larger, as you with strangers, uh, then there's, again, all the stuff that John's talking about, trying to impress people and trying to make them, them think. So I think it's, it's more setting-dependent than institution-dependent. Uh, let's just, just follow that up with this uh, example of that. Um, you know, Bruce, we're old friends, and sometimes we sit around – and we bullshit. And to what John was talking about, 
what we'll do is we'll test out a new hypothesis. We'll throw it out there and we'll see each other's reaction. And if we're, you know, one is dumbfounded and shocked and horrified, you know, that'll give us a clue that maybe we shouldn't mention that again. Um, you know, I, I think there's a distinction when we talk about we're just bullshitting. Um, maybe we're not exaggerating. Maybe we're just trash talking or just talking gibberish. And maybe that should be the nature of my next question for John. John, to some extent, you define some bullshit as just being gibberish. Um, to what extent are we just having fun? Is it just ridiculous? Um, when did it turn from gibberish to being a problem? Yeah, I think, I mean, if you are saying, hey, we're just bullshitting, or if you signal in any way that uh, this may not be very uh, well tied to truth or genuine evidence or established knowledge, um, I think what you're doing is you are, uh, you're saying, I, I'm, I'm speculating, or you're you're putting a, qual- a qualifier out there, you know, and saying, hey, um, I actually am interested in truth, and, and so this what I'm saying, though, is not necessarily uh, gospel truth, right? So, so I think in that context, I think it's it's generally harmless. But when you say the same thing, and you are disguising or being deceptive in in the way that you say it, um, and suggesting that you are interested and that you do believe uh, what it is that you say. Um, similar to the liar, you are being deceptive in that you're acting as though you actually are interested in the truth. And if you're not, but you're pretending that you are, then then I think that's it. Depending on the content, obviously, depending on the content, it's it's it can uh, it can vary in how harmful it is. If it if it leads someone to believe something that's not true, and then gets factored into an important decision, then I would say it's extremely harmful. But if if it leads you to believe that, um, you know, the uh, Keeping Up with the Kardashians is a great show and you should you should watch it. I mean, I'm not so sure. I mean, I would I, I think that's at least mildly harmful, but 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 I'm not <laughs> so sure that that has the same kind of harm that, um, well, yeah, I'm going to buy this used car and I'm going to now I'm going to expect it to to give me another 100,000 miles. It only has 20,000 miles on it now. I should it should I should I should easily clear 120,000 miles and then and then it turns out to be a lemon because the person selling to to you really had no clue ab- about any of the details of of the car. So, I think you're I mean it certainly depends on the context and what the actual content of the bullshit actually is. Um but it it can certainly vary. Um all right. Uh, with that, I would like to end the show with some notes of optimism. Uh, I'm going to start with Robin. Robin, what are you optimistic about? And I don't want no bullshit. <laughs> uh, I'm going to take my optimism from one of your questions today, Larry, which is, uh, is the glass half full or half empty? If you look at the U.S. economic response to COVID, I think uh, it is to be envied around, around the world. And while the work that I spoke about today is about some of the unintended consequences and some of the uh, impact of less than perfect targeting. Overall, I think there's a lot to be um, a, a, a lot to be praised about the U.S. economic response and, and where we go from here. I agree with you, Bruce. What are you optimistic about? 
Well, my answer will be uh, bullshit just in the sense of extrapolating from my very narrow experience in life and the world. So just with that caveat, I would say I want to be optimistic about our capacity to self-govern. I think we've had uh, very strenuous years, as Robin mentioned, with, uh, with the pandemic, but also before with uh, political stresses. But I believe that U.S. institutions are strong, that will endure, that we should not expect constitutional democracy to be anything but messy. It's hard living together, but we need to keep working at it with the optimism it deserves. Perfect, John. Yeah, I would say that, that people are unlikely to change their minds you know, right away once we give them well-reasoned arguments and information that they've been missing out on, um, especially if it if uh, they're not interested in truth to begin with. Um, but I'm hopeful because I, I believe that um, to the extent that we change our communicative culture such that we feel a little more comfortable calling bullshit when it emerges, I think the more we do that, more comfortable we, we, we feel with that, uh, the more frequently we will signal um, to bullshitters that um, that I don't accept this, that you're going to have to do better, and I think that's going to open the gateway for evidence-based communication and, and ultimately more optimal decisions. So that's that's what I'm hopeful about. Thank you. All right, that ends today's session. I do want to make a plug for next week's episode. Uh, I'm really excited to announce that we're going to have the president of Northwestern, Morty Shapiro, on the show uh, with his co-author, Gary Saul Morrison, who will discuss their new book entitled Minds Wide Shut. Uh, this book explores polarization in detail and why we're seeing dueling monologues between both sides of the political spectrum. Each side thinks they're right, and then there's nothing to learn from their political opponents uh, hopefully, Morty and Saul can teach us a little bit about how to forge ahead and begin a conversation that heals the political divide. Um, our final speaker uh, next week will be my college roommate, Josh Sovin. I mentioned it briefly earlier in the show. He's a partner at Wilson Sonsini and specializes in antitrust. Uh, Josh previously worked for the Department of Justice and the independent government agency, the FTC. Uh, Josh will speak about Biden staffing the antitrust department with progressives with an agenda to break up big tech. And I'm, I want to learn about how to, this will play itself out. Uh, if you're interested in listening to a replay of today's What Happens Next program or any of our other previous programs, wish for your transcript, you could find them on our website, whathappensnextin6minutes.com. Replays are also available on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. Uh, I would like to thank today's speakers for their insights. I would also like to thank our listeners for their time and for engaging with these complex issues. Please stay tuned next Sunday to find out what happens next. Thank you, and you can disconnect at this time. Bye-bye.